Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Uh, let's get into it. There's a couple of anniversaries on October 3rd, 42 BC. An army led by two of Julius Caesar's assassins, the two most famous, Marcus Junius Brutus and Gaius Cassius Longinus, met uh, the combined armies of the triumvirs Mark Antony and Octavian in the first round of the Battle of Philippi. Uh, or Philippi, I suppose. Uh, Anthony's forces defeated Cassius's forces, and Cassius subsequently committed suicide after hearing that Brutus had also been defeated. But in fact, Brutus's portion of the army had been victorious in its battle against Octavian's forces. So overall, the first uh, engagement at Philippi was a draw, more or less. Uh, but the two armies would meet again 20 days later, at which point the triumvirs soundly defeated Brutus, and he too committed suicide. On October 3rd, 1932, in accordance with the terms of the Anglo-Iraqi Treaty of 1930, Iraq gained independence from Britain upon the expiration of its League of Nations mandate, albeit with Britain retaining substantial political and commercial influence in the newly independent kingdom, which, uh, as you are probably aware, worked out great for everybody. Uh, this is commemorated annually as Iraqi National Day. Uh, on a similar note, on October 3rd, 1990, the German Democratic Republic, a.k.a. East Germany, was merged into the Federal Republic of Germany, a.k.a. West Germany, after a 45-year separation. This is commemorated annually as German Unity Day. On to the news in the Middle East and Yemen. A group of some 50 Yemeni and international NGOs issued a joint statement on Tuesday warning that, quote, while economic challenges are rife across the country, rising inflation and the deterioration of public services are making life unbearable, end quote, for Yemenis, particularly those living in and around the country's de facto capital, Aden. Uh, apparently, residents of that part of Yemen are dealing with upwards of 17 hours a day without electricity. Uh, and many cannot afford rising food prices. While Yemen has been under a tacit ceasefire since October, the failure to renew the actual ceasefire that expired that same month has had substantial negative effects on the Yemeni economy uh, and a paucity of international aid money in part because attention remains focused on Ukraine has left those NGOs scrambling to make do with less uh, in general. Uh, in Iraq, the Turkish military carried out a new round of airstrikes against Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, outposts in northern Iraq on Tuesday, destroying 16 targets, according to their figures. The Turks are saying that they are still retaliating for Sunday's PKK bombing in Ankara, but since they regularly strike the group in northern Iraq anyway, I'm not sure the bombing really has all that much to do with it. Uh, in Israel-Palestine, there's a piece at the New York Times on the uh, heartwarming story of Israeli settlers uh, essentially continuing to effect an unofficial annexation of the West Bank. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here. Across remote parts of the West Bank, the mountainous territory occupied by Israel since the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, Palestinian herding communities are abandoning their homes at a rate that has no recorded precedent, according to the United Nations. Uh, simultaneously, Israeli settlers are establishing wildcat herding outposts at close to record levels, often near Palestinian villages, according to land assessments by Kerem Navot, uh, an independent Israeli watchdog that monitors act uh, settlement activity. The group says that at least 20 new outposts have been established since the beginning of the year, a handful of which were dismantled by the Israeli army before being reassembled. 
The result has been the accelerated expansion of an Israeli civilian presence across large and strategic tracts of the territory, more than 140 square miles, according to Karem Navot. Uh, and the simultaneous retreat of Palestinians from the same rural areas. The Israeli settlers' stated intention is to chip away at wide expanses of land that the Palestinian leadership at the advent of the Oslo peace process 30 years ago hoped would form the territorial spine of a future Palestinian state. In Asia and Armenia, the Armenian parliament on Tuesday voted to ratify the Rome Statute, making Armenia a full-fledged member of the International Criminal Court. This is clearly a snub of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who would now be at risk of arrest if he were to visit Armenia, given his active ICC indictment. Armenian officials insisted that there's no chance they would actually arrest him, but nevertheless... Moscow and the ICC are decidedly not on good terms right now, and the Armenian government remains pretty irritated that Russian peacekeepers did nothing to stop the Azerbaijani military seizure of the Nagorno-Karabakh region last month. The math here isn't exactly advanced calculus, and certainly the Kremlin, which heavily criticized the vote, understood what was happening. In Azerbaijan, on the subject of Karabakh, Authorities have now apparently arrested several former top officials of the secessionist Republic of Artsakh administration. It's unclear exactly what charges they're going to face or what their punishments might be if we make the fairly safe assumption that they'll eventually be found guilty. The arrests don't exactly contradict Azerbaijani promises to peacefully integrate Karabakh's Armenian population, but they also don't instill a lot of confidence about those promises being fulfilled. Meanwhile, at Al-Monitor, Amberin Zaman assesses the risk of a new conflict over Azerbaijan's designs on southern Armenia. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs of her piece. Baku wants to connect Azerbaijan to Nakhchivan, an Azerbaijani exclave that borders Turkey. Aliyev, uh, Ilham Aliyev, the president uh, of Azerbaijan, insists that Azerbaijan should be granted unfettered access uh, through a proposed land corridor uh, and not be subjected to border controls. Uh, Armenia reposts that not only would this constitute uh, a breach of its sovereignty, but it would effectively cut off or cut it off rather from its southern neighbor and closest regional ally, Iran. Uh, Turkey favors the scheme because it, this would allow it direct access to Azerbaijan proper uh, and to Russian and Central Asian markets that lie beyond. Russia is also on board, provided that its own forces monitor the corridor. Armenia's real and not unreasonable worry is that Baku will use the corridor as a launching pad to invade Sunik, uh, the southern region that separates Nakhchivan from Azerbaijan. Israel would be delighted. It uses Azerbaijani soil to spy on Iran. In exchange, Israel provided weapons in the last two Nagorno-Karabakh wars. Iran has declared any such move cause for war. In an ominous portent, Azerbaijan has occupied an estimated 125 square kilometers of Armenian territory since 2020. Western inertia in the face of the past week's events may embolden Aliyev to make another land grab, sowing the seeds of yet another cycle of bloodletting. This would be all the more likely should Russia succeed in ousting Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and installing its own uh, apparatchiks, most likely in a coup. The Kremlin could revert to its old tactic of playing one side against the other.
In India, the Indian government has reportedly ordered Canada to recall 41 of the 62 diplomatic staffers it currently has posted to India in the latest fallout from the dispute over the murder of Sikh nationalist Hardeep Singh Nijar and the Canadian government's assertion that India was responsible. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who's been steadily backpedaling uh, since leveling that accusation last month, said that his government will, quote, continue to engage responsibly and constructively, end quote, with New Delhi to try to forestall that expulsion order. Uh, in China, the Biden administration on Tuesday blacklisted 28 people and entities linked to global drug trafficking, including an alleged Chinese network involved in the fentanyl trade. The U.S. Justice Department also unsealed drug-related indictments involving eight Chinese entities and 12 individuals. In Africa and Sudan, European Union ambassadors have agreed to what Reuters termed a framework for sanctioning key actors in the conflict between the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary group. As you might have guessed from the warning, the EU is still a few steps away from actually sanctioning anybody. Member state foreign ministers still need to approve the framework, and then the EU can start fleshing it out with names. In Niger, authorities announced late Monday that a jihadist attack near the Malian border had left at least 29 of their soldiers dead. They haven't said exactly when or where this attack took place, though as to the latter, it was probably in Niger's troubled Tilaberi region. Uh, Niger's junta also rejected a claim that we talked about uh, in last night's newsletter uh, by Algerian Foreign Minister Ahmed Ataf that junta leaders had accepted Algeria's six-month transition plan and its offer to mediate Niger's dispute with the economic community of West African states. It is unclear why Ataf made that claim without some assurance that the junta would, you know, back him up. Uh, on to Europe. In Russia, the governor of Bryansk Oblast in Russia, Alexander Bogomaz, claimed on Tuesday that Ukrainian forces had shelled a border village using cluster munitions. There are no reports of any casualties, but if true, the use of cluster bombs in areas containing civilian populations is at least arguably a war crime and goes against assurances that Ukrainian officials have made about their use of such munitions. Again, that's if this claim is true. There is no confirmation of Bogomaz's allegation. Meanwhile, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said Tuesday that the Kremlin has no plans to order a new military mobilization and has no need for one, given that, according to him, some 335,000 people have volunteered to fight for Russia in Ukraine so far this year. Some portion of them are likely mercenaries, including ex-Wagner group fighters who have agreed to join voluntary forces, put that in quotes, uh, that are controlled by Shoigu's ministry. Needless to say, there's no indication that the Russians are on the back foot in Ukraine. An analysis from Harvard's Belfer Center even suggests they've gained more Ukrainian territory than they've lost over the past month, uh, though neither side has made much headway in either direction. In Ukraine, the Ukrainian government has reportedly reached a deal to facilitate the exportation of its grain products with the governments of Lithuania and Poland. The deal will allow great Ukrainian grain to pass more expeditiously through Poland because it shifts the inspection point for shipments from the Polish border to the Lithuanian port of Klaipeda. Or Klaipeda. Uh, from there, it can be shipped via the Baltic Sea. There's some hope that this new plan will ease mounting tensions between the Ukrainian and Polish governments over those grain exports mostly because if it works, it will mean less Ukrainian grain passing overland through Poland and neighboring states. 
In Serbia, the Serbian government has reportedly arrested the prime suspect in last month's apparent Serb militant attack in northern Kosovo. He is a Kosovan Serb political figure named Milan Radojic, Radojic, uh, and he is accused uh, of having facilitated the attack by, among other things, procuring weapons for the attackers. Kosovan authorities want him extradited, but there is no indication at this point that the Serbian government is prepared to do that. In the meantime, fears sparked by a Serbian military buildup along the Kosovan border appear to have subsided as Belgrade has reduced its border deployment to something approaching normal levels. In Hungary, the European Union is currently sitting on billions of euros in funds that have been earmarked for Hungary, but frozen because of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's disdain for little things like eh, the rule of law and human rights, you know, minor details. Uh, But EU member states are apparently ready to unfreeze at least part of that money, not because Orban has seen the light on those issues, but in order to bribe him to support the EU's agenda regarding Ukraine. The EU is set to begin membership talks with Kyiv in December, unless that is one of the bloc's member states should object. The EU also wants to raise members' financial obligations to support additional Ukraine aid. Orban can quash either or both of these plans if he wants, and given that he's not terribly fond of the Ukrainian government and is pretty fond of Vladimir Putin, it's clear he'll need some inducement to let them move forward. Nothing is decided here, and Orban may need to make at least some token gesture uh, towards satisfying EU objections to the way he governs, but we'll see. In Spain, King Felipe VI tapped Socialist Party leader and current caretaker Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez to form a new government on Tuesday following the failure of People's Party leader Alberto Núñez Feijó's bid last week. Sanchez is thought to have a slightly smoother path toward winning a confirmation vote than his rival had, but he will need to curry favor with uh, Catalan separatists and Basque nationalists to do it, uh, and it very much remains to be seen whether he'll be able to pull that off. In the Americas, Guatemalan President-elect Bernardo Arevalo visited Washington on Tuesday to meet with U.S. officials, including National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, to discuss his ongoing legal struggles back home. Uh, As we covered in last night's newsletter, Guatemalan Attorney General Maria Consuelo Porras is still trying to undermine Arevalo's incoming administration, presumably because of his stated intention to root out corruption and her strong preference that he not do that. Uh, The Biden administration joining the United Nations and the Organization of America American states has raised concerns about Arevalo's transition process. In the United States, the Federal Communications Commission has made the Dish Network Corporation the proud recipient of the first fine ever levied by the federal government over the issue of space junk. The FCC has charged Dish $150,000 over what it says is a failure to properly deorbit the company's Echo Star 7 satellite. Apparently, the company had promised to move that device to a higher, less risky orbit as it reached the end of its operational lifespan, but opted to move it only part of the way and then leave it parked at an altitude where it is still a significant collision risk. The fine is a pittance, of course, but it could set a precedent uh, for dealing uh, with the ongoing challenge of space junk. Finally, at World Politics Review, Emma Ashford looks at the emerging U.S.-Israeli-Saudi concordance and wonders what is actually in it 
for one of those three parties. I'll read you the intro to her piece. Perhaps U.S. President Joe Biden's strangest policy U-turn since taking office has been his total reversal on U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia. As a candidate in 2020, Biden called Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, a pariah and promised to make Saudi leaders pay for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Three years later, as part of a drive to secure Saudi Arabia's diplomatic recognition of Israel, the Biden administration is inching ever closer toward offering Riyadh the kind of security guarantees only given to Washington's closest and most important allies. Though the actual details are not yet known or even finalized, the rough contours of the deal are clear. In exchange for normalizing relations with Israel, Saudi Arabia would receive a formal security guarantee from the United States along with technical assistance on its civilian nuclear program. The U.S. has often compromised its values in the past to advance urgent security interests, and the administration and its backers argue that this deal is just such a case of strategic necessity. It would, they argue, help stabilize and strengthen the security environment in the Gulf, and more importantly, help the U.S. gain an advantage over China in a critical region. It is perhaps no surprise that many critics of the deal have focused instead on Saudi Arabia's abysmal human rights record, from the killing and jailing of dissidents to the apparent state-sanctioned slaughter of migrants on the border with Yemen. Others have pointed to the potential risk that the deal might undermine Palestinians' struggle for rights and statehood, as well as the impact it could have on Israeli domestic politics by emboldening the far-right factions in the current Israeli government. But focusing on Saudi Arabia's human rights record, appalling though it might be, is a red herring. The real problem with this deal, as it is currently being reported, is that it would do little to advance U.S. interests on oil prices, regional stability, or even geopolitical competition with China. The stated goal of normalization between Israel and the Arab states is admirable in achieving it would be historic, but it's simply not worth the price the Biden administration appears willing to pay. Uh, on that note, that's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and thanks to those of you who are subscribers of foreign exchanges, especially those of you who are paid subscribers who make this newsletter possible. Your uh, support is essential. Uh, and we're going to have a little announcement tomorrow morning. Stay tuned for that uh, about something that was made possible because of your support. Uh, so like I said, please stay tuned for that. And, and everybody else, you'll, you'll get the same announcement. Uh, and maybe I'm hoping it will encourage you uh, to take the jump and become a paid foreign exchange subscriber as well uh, so that we can keep this place running uh, on that note uh, thanks to all of you uh, again and until next time take care and i'll talk to you soon bye-bye